0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto
0: and Christopher Hurtado.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Well, welcome back. This week, I have a special guest. It's great to have Shiloh Logan back on the program. Good to be here. Yeah, you were the original co-host with Riley before you asked me to take your place, and now you're back, and it's good to have you back. And, you know, Riley's on a much-deserved vacation, and so it's you and me, and we're going to talk about another Beatitude. Of course. The last one, right? The last
1: one. I mean, what else would we talk about? What What is there else possible to talk about <laughs> than the Beatitudes?
0: This is where it's at.
1: <laughs> it's right where it's at, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's talk about the last beatitude. So, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all, does it?
0: Well, the blessed part does.
1: <laughs> blessed for being persecuted.
0: Man. I don't know about the right, the persecuted part, yeah.
1: You're like, "Man, what was Jesus talking about?" Like, like where do we even start with that? How does that how does that even make sense?
0: I was hoping you would tell us. Oh, man.
1: Well, I, I got a few ideas. Um, you know, so as, as we've talked about this for a, a long time and I know several listeners have heard this a lot and they're going to hear it again because let's hear it. This is, yeah, this is one of those conversations that I, I get really excited about because every time this story comes along, there's something new to be learned. There's something new about myself whenever I talk about it that, you know, I write down on the margins on the side and, and I see about myself. A lot of the times we have these moments that we don't like self-reflection because of what pops up. And I'm going to tell you, there's, a, there's some places that I don't want to discover things about myself. I, and it's like there's, there's these little corners in our, in our hearts, in our spaces, in our soul. We really don't want to go over there and to analyze them. We don't want to touch them. Because we're afraid of what's going to come out of the box, right? It's like Pandora's box. and, and, and what are we going to unleash if we, if we end up dealing with some of these things? And we all have them, right? We all have these we all have these things in our soul that uh, traumas that we've tried to bury, stories about ourselves, stories about others that we, we find comfort in. You know, I've known a lot of people in my life who find comfort in their trauma. And not in a good way. Um, What I mean, they're addicted to their story so much of trauma that they just keep reliving it, and they keep projecting it, and they keep living into it again. And this is, yeah, but you know, but but this isn't the kind of person. At least they feel like they can. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like they, they can't seem to get out of this loop. And in our lives where we keep like reliving the same tragedy or the same trauma or the same thing, the same thing keeps on happening over and over and over again. And I, you know, feel you. I, I had a couple of relationships before I, I met my wife and, you know, they all ended poorly. And the last girl I dated before I met my wife, I had asked her, I'm like, man, this is like another relationship that's gone south in this particular way. And she said, well you might want to take a look at yourself about why you're attracting the people you're attracting. Ooh. And I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) And, and for as much as I hated that, I was like, Oh man, because we always want to project outwards for the bad things that happen in our lives. Right. And yet so much of it comes back to who and what we are and what we project mostly subconsciously into our lives. And then we live into it and it justifies what we're projecting out there. And then all of a sudden it seems like, well, that's just what reality is.
0: Yeah, that's the truth of it.
1: Right? So the Beatitudes are this conversation about how how do we get rid of our ego? And I don't know if that's ever actually completely possible, right? But it's the consciousness of recognizing when the ego comes and starts to destroy our peace. And and you know, it's one of those things in my life, I realize I'm never going to give up on every aspect of my natural identities. I'm never going to give up on everything in my life, the group think that I have of a particular this particular group or that particular group. It's just not going to happen.
0: I remember hearing a story when when it comes to this question of whether it's possible of someone who felt like they had they had gotten rid of their ego and then they were, they were so proud of themselves <laughs> having gotten rid of their ego. And they said, Oh man, start over again.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's that kind of thing. It's, it's like once, once you realize that you're, you're over your ego, you're like, Oh man, I, I am over my ego. <laughs> right. You're like, you're like, Oh crap. And so, and so there's, go like this, me. yeah, go me. So you have to start over again. And that's what I think is so beautiful, at least one of the many things that's so beautiful about the Beatitudes, is the way it's structured. And I can't remember the three or four books I was reading that talked about this. I have a stack of them over here, and I could find them if I looked. But it was identifying the Greek rhetoric that Matthew, or the author here attributed to Matthew, is imploring and and writing in, because the first Beatitude of being poor in spirit and the last beatitude that we're talking about here today, in "Blessed are those who are persecuted for Christ's name and for and for Christ's sake," the blessing there is the same. It's the kingdom of heaven.
0: Yeah, I left that out.
1: Right. And so, why is the blessing the same on this? What what what's the what what's the deal here? And
0: for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
1: Yeah. And, and so the, the, yeah. the purpose here and what it's trying to invoke in our mind is that the Beatitudes initially set themselves apart as a hierarchy. You know, and, and for those who, you know, listen to Jordan Peterson or have heard Jordan Peterson stuff, his whole, you know, lobsters and the hierarchy. And, and we see hierarchies in our entire lives all over the place. Everything has a hierarchy.
0: Including the Beatitudes.
1: Including the Beatitudes, or right? Or at
0: least so it seems.
1: And so it seems. It seems like a ladder. You know, you got to take the first step, the second step, the third step. And and that's how it initially begins. First things first, being poor in spirit. Second things second, mourning that identity when you lose it and empty it. Then we come along and we have meekness and we hunger and thirst after righteousness. and the, And so on and so forth until we get down to being persecuted. And then it's the same blessing as it was at the very beginning. So wouldn't we get something better than the beginning?
0: Or couldn't we just skip all the intermediary steps? Right. Or do we need any step since we already the first step would get us the same blessing? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so what it does So what's the deal? So the deal is is we're connecting the beginning with the end. And mm-hmm. it, it it connects the you know, the first is last, the last is first. It topples the hierarchy.
0: It's it turned on its head.
1: It's turned on its head and, and it's it's brought into one eternal round.
0: And Jesus does this left and right. Yeah. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And uh, the servant is the master, and the master is the servant. Yeah, these hierarchies just get turned on their head left and right.
1: Right. And it's one of those things that say that just when you think you're done with it, just when you think you did it, you start over again. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? So so here's the story. And I have to say this again, and I've said this a hundred times, but when we start with the first beatitude, that's really the hardest one to talk about. I mean, we can spend 90% of our time with the first beatitude. And if we tell that story correctly, all the rest of them just fall into place and seem to make sense. Right. But we've done a lot of talking about the porn spirit. We don't have to spend all that time here on this episode because we've spent so much time in other places about the po- poverty of spirit. And I know you've already already recorded on it. So in short that poverty of spirit is talking about us emptying from all of our worldly attachments all of the things that we th- that ego that things the ego was going to be able to solve and to do and to qualify for anything. All of the worldly attachments that that make us think that this is mine and this is and and I have some kind of control over it or or something of that nature. And once we've gotten rid of all of those earthly identities we we we've let those all go. Then there's the mourning period, and and we experience the mourn, the loss. It's it's like Lot's wife when she leaves, and she leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, and that story when she leaves, but yet she's mourning the 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 loss of identity, of community, or of what, whatever it was that was pulling her back, whether or not it was love and, and, and affinity for the people there, but she turns around. And this is where we get the, the, the phrase, like a dog to its vomit, right? It's a dog going back
0: to- and Don't the, look back.
1: Don't look back, right. And so in this way, we stand looking away from Sodom, not looking back, realizing that everything that we were, our identity, everything that we'd built up for ourselves is gone. And so we stand there in that morning, and then when we become meek—you know, you and I spent quite a bit of time talking about meekness in the previous uh, previous podcast and episode— and that meekness is this place where it's, in, there, in this place where we have no identity to the earth and we, we no longer belong to a group because we've emptied all of that group identity. And when we don't belong anywhere, now this magical thing happens that we suddenly belong everywhere. Or it's like we're a universal plug-in. We go anywhere. And
0: We inherit the earth.
1: We inherit the earth, right. Because we inherit the earth because we, we can be anywhere we're not bound by group or creed. There's nothing there that binds us. Meekness becomes unbounded in a type of way, in in no small type of way. And then from this, the hungering and thirsting, we start to hunger and thirst and to realize that we've been emptied, we've been drained, all of this has come along, and we start to hunger for, for more. We start to hunger to be filled because we've been empty for so long. And then God comes and fills us.
0: And of course, we couldn't be filled if we weren't already empty. So we do have to be, we have to, we have to take that first step of emptying ourselves to be able to be filled.
1: Yeah. And so with that, the first thing we recognize along this beatitude path is that we've literally done nothing to qualify for anything. All we ever did was just let go. And, and so I guess in a sense, you can say letting go was what qualified you for it, but that's not really it. Because by letting go, you just allowed yourself to see what was already present, what already has already been.
0: Yeah, you know, I saw tonight, I was reading uh, somewhere, ego turned into an acronym, edging God out. I mean, how's God supposed to get in if you've got the ego edging God out, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so when we stand there in mercy... It's because we recognize that nothing we've ever done has really been us qualifying for this entire experience of being, of of hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled. It's like Enos who stands there after he hungered and thirsted after righteousness, and he he asks God, he's like God, how is this even possible? Just because the the radical transformation of you just letting go to recognize everything that has always already been is is just. We can't even comprehend. And that's when we recognize that the entire thing was only ever
0: mercy. It's all it ever was.
1: That's all. Yeah, it's all it ever was. And so then we learn, blessed are the merciful, because they're the ones that obtain mercy. They're coming into this state of mercy because they're recognizing this is what God always already does. And then from that moment, we we step into it, and Enos begins to pray, You know, using Enos as a great test case after he realizes that he's been forgiven of his sins, he starts to see the face of God in his people. He starts to pray for his people. And once he gains assurances for his people, he begins to then turn to his enemies, his perceived enemies. But I love it it says, he he doesn't actually deem them his enemies. He says, my brethren. And he talks about the Lamanites and he asks for the, the Lord to bless the Lamanites. And so this is... Enos, who is who has been given mercy, who then is looking for ways to show mercy. And in the next step of being pure in heart, you cannot be pure in heart unless you've let go of the world. You've mourned, you've been filled with God's love. You've recognized you've done nothing, and yet mercy has completely filled you and has shown you that God's path. And it's in that purity that you begin to see the face of God in yourself. And in the other.
0: Including your perceived enemies, those who you, whom you perceived as enemies.
1: Right. But yeah, but in a lot of cases, like in Enos's case, he's not even seeing them as enemies. He's, he's come to a place where he doesn't even see them as enemies, right?
0: Right. Yeah. These are the people you perceived as enemies, and now you don't.
1: And now you don't. And then and only then are you truly in a place where Christ then comes and says, now blessed are the peacemakers. Because the peacemakers are the only ones who can bring peace because they're the only ones who have no egoistic identity to pull anywhere. They're not entering into the conversation and engaging in the conversation in an egoistic way because they have a side to prove. They, they need to people to believe their side.
0: Well, the whole point of not having peace is because you have this my side versus your side. Right whatever, at, at whatever level, right? My side is right, or my side is better, or my side is what have you. But if you don't have that side, if you belong anywhere and everywhere, then you have peace. And by the way, another reason why they're the only ones who can give peace is because they're the only, the only ones who have it. You can't give something you don't have.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. It, the peace is already coming, and, and we received that in those moments. We really start to receive that really with meekness. Because all of a sudden, the things that cause the pain, and this is a very stoic, a very stoic way of looking at it, at least as far as, you know, there can be physical pain. We can recognize that, you know, hey, maybe I cut my finger off and maybe there can be that physical pain. But in, in a larger sense, the, the traumas that we feel in life and we experience are not always physical. But even with the physical traumas that we have no choice but to go through those physical pains. We can still choose those.
0: Yeah, I mean, once your finger's cut off, it's cut off, right?
1: That's right. And you're not going to be able to do anything with it,
0: right? I mean, what's the point? What's the point of um, we call it crying over spilled milk, right? It's like your fingers cut off. That's that. I mean, if you can sew it back on, great. Otherwise, that's that. It is what it is.
1: Right. And if you can sew it back on, sew it back on. And if you can't, then you can't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a stoic would say. It would be preferable that your finger would not be cut off, but if it would be cut off and there's nothing you can do about it, you would move on.
1: Right. And it's very much in that kind of way of looking at things of things that I can do, things that I can't do, things that are in my way of influencing and things in my way of doing things and things that aren't.
0: I'm really bad at this, Shiloh. You you know me.
1: <laughs> I think we're both I think we're both really bad at this.
0: Yeah. My wife calls me a sucky stoic. <laughs> She knows. I think she knows. I registered the domain name, you know, psychestoic.com.
1: Yeah, you I told me about I, with
0: it. Yet. I yeah. think we need
1: to do something with that.
0: Yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> Foreshadowing of
1: a future project, right?
0: Well, and, and what, it, what it comes down to is being vulnerable, which is kind of what we're talking about here, right? Is being willing to be vulnerable. This is where you started us off where we all have these places that we don't want to look. And that's where I thought it would actually be therapeutic to take this domain name and to write about my suckiness as a Stoic and inspired by Marcus Aurelius, who was a great Stoic and really sucked at it. You know, <laughs> what made him a great Stoic was not that he didn't suck at it, but that he kept trying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and that's the very point, because we realize that as we're coming along to be a peacemaker, to to it's a peacemaker, right? It's not just someone who feels peace but it's someone who actively goes out and makes it and they go out and they make it because when there's been only a few handful of people in my life who who have been like this, where they, they come into your life just so purely that, you know, there's no judgment there, but they are so purely authentic that you know that you, it pulls you and invites you. Just their way of being pulls you into being authentic with them.
0: And this is Christ-like. And, and the one who comes to, to my mind is my mother-in-law. You know my mother-in-law.
1: I do. Yeah. I, I, there, there's like no guile there, right? You know, I've met her several times. There's, there's no guile there. Just, just to be around her, I, I, and, and I, love, I love your mother-in-law so much, just to be around her is this moment where she can know the worst thing about you and and it would be okay.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right? And, and it would just yeah. be love and acceptance and, and to sit there with you. And, and that's not to justify it. It's not that she'd be sitting there justifying it and saying, hey, that's fine. You just do whatever you want. But no, it's the love and the care and the compassion, the true humanity of just being there with someone who is so purely authentic that you just, you just have to be honest and authentic with them. Yeah, and for, so from
0: her point of view as she's told me herself is she knows you are where you are and that's just where you are it's a very stoic point of view right yeah you are where you are and everyone has to find their own way and as i always quote rumi is saying there are as many paths to god as there are people on earth and you're on yours and i'm on mine
1: yeah that's such a great way to look at it you know and you you brought it back to the beginning as well because once we're there and we're actually peacemaking and not peacemaking by going out and we can go out and physically affect change. I'm, I'm not speaking against that. I'm not saying that we just we just meander and let people partake of our aura, as it were. But yeah, we can go out and right. we can actually affect change. But the, the point here is is that what kind of change we affect really has everything to do with what kind of person we are.
0: What's well, the change that, is, that has been affected in ourselves, right?
1: That's right. And it has to start there.
0: Anyone who can, I, I remember reading this earlier today, too. I can't remember where. Anyone who can change himself can change the world.
1: <laughs> but we don't like to start with ourselves. It's, we always like to start no. with the world. <laughs> it's, it's so much easier. You never have to deal with yourself, right?
0: This is the point of Jordan Peterson's dictum, clean your room, right?
1: Yeah. It is, you know, I was even talking and as a, as a matter of vulnerability for myself. So I suffer, I suffer, um, I experience anxiety a lot. And for me, I, I talk about anxiety as being stacked emotions that one, one, you know, I don't address one emotion, which leads to another emotion, which leads to another emotion. And pretty soon you just, you stack all these emotions and it it becomes very debilitating for me at times. And, and so it impacts a lot of my human relationships, a lot of my friendships, and a lot of and you know my family relationships, and because especially like with my my workload, my my tasks, my school workload, my life workload, my personal relationships, I. I'll feel like I need to be doing one th- one task and so I'll be doing one task, but it doesn't matter what task I'm doing and even if I need to be doing that task, I always feel like I need to be doing something else. So I'll go do that other task, right?
0: Oh man, I feel so bad about <laughs> I feel so bad about bugging you all week about recording this podcast) <laughs>
1: No, and and, and it was a major contributing
0: factor to your anxiety this week.
1: Oh, you know, and it did. But the thing is, is I kept on being like, be a stoic, be a stoic. So I had this thing like sucky stalk in my head all week long, right? That's awesome. And so when, if I'm, no matter what I'm doing, it's like, I feel like there's something else I need to be doing. And so if I'm sitting and I'm being with my family, I feel like I need to be overdoing something else. And if I'm overdoing that something else, I immediately feel guilty because I should be with my family. And all of a sudden I just, I, I lose everything. And the only thing that I've really found You end
0: never nowhere.
1: Right. You end up nowhere. And the only thing that for me personally really overcomes the 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 anxiety is to be physically active doing something. And if I'm physically active doing something, Mm. just the you know, the, the activity, the physical exertion, whatever it is for me personally, it kind of overrides all of my other coping mechanisms because I usually have something physically to show for it at the end. And as I was talking to my wife about this earlier today, in fact, she says, well, should we, and my wife is, is, is everything to me. And she, she's my rock and my foundation. And she's just, she's so willing it, it, to drop any direction that we're kind of headed in as a family and to like do a complete one hundred and eighty, and just to do anything else at any moment. And I can't tell you what, what a support that is for me, but I was talking with her and she says, well, like with my education, she's like, do we need to do, to reevaluate that and to do something completely different. And so that you could go off and try something physical. And, it, <laughs> and she's like talk, talking about like not making amazing. major, major life changes. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not where I'm going with that. Um, because doing something physical for me is often the biggest coping mechanism. I'm not actually dealing with my life. I'm just doing something that Trumps everything else.
0: Well, I was hoping you'd get around to that, Shiloh, because here we're talking about contemplation, right? That's the whole point of the podcast, and this idea of being a human doing—that's not where it's at, right? No, <laughs> it's, it's about not. being. Yeah, that's
1: right. And so I can go out and I can but do these things. We all into that trap. We all do. It's it's just a yeah. standard human, a standard human experience. And so I recognize, even today, I'm having these moments and these experiences where. I'm like, oh, man, I recognize this about myself. And so going back to the very beginning of what we talked about, I recognize these things about myself. I don't want to address these things about myself. I uh, Working and dealing with these things are often very painful um, because there's a lot of things that you have to accept about yourself. Now, me personally, I, I very much enjoy, there's a part of my personality with, that is naturally very stoic in that on most things, I can really kind of compartmentalize them saying, if it's true, why be offended by it? It's true. If it's not true, why be offended why by I it? Why be it's offended not, by it, yeah. It's not true, right? So so in most of my life— and,
0: and my personal favorite from Seneca, who says, when someone says something about you, you say— Oh the only reason uh, he didn't he he only said that is because he doesn't know my other faults. <laughs> he would have mentioned those too.
1: yeah, I feel that I, I I feel attacked by that so 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 in that way, the persecution that I have on myself the the inner persecution is really greater than any external persecution that I can receive.
0: Ah, we found the persecution.
1: Yeah, because most external persecution that I feel, I was like, it's either true or it's not. And if it's true, it's true, then okay, whatever. And if it's not, then it's not, then whatever. But there's also this thing inside, there's this inner accusing agent inside that accuses me that if I'm doing one thing, I should be doing another. And if I'm doing this thing, I should be doing that thing. And this this inner voice that drives discontent within the chamber of my, my, my own heart and mind.
0: Shiloh, are you saying I'm persecuting myself? I'm the culprit. <laughs>
1: I'm the one doing this. You're the one doing of it for course. yourself? Yeah. Right. And I'm doing it for myself. And
0: I'm the one persecuting me. Oh,
1: what am I doing? Yeah. Because we don't want to address ourselves, we don't want to see ourselves. It's easy. It's easy to believe the, when I taught seminary for so many years, one of the things that I kept talking about was I I would, I would have the, the, these exercises where I would have the students say something about themselves. And inevitably the list of things that were on the, they try to be, nobody really likes to paint themselves too good because it seems prideful. And so it's easier to, to show yourself negatively. And but these students were trying to do it more moderately,
0: or, or it's actually prideful because what you're doing is you're you're trying to cover up that you're that you're covering up. That's <laughs> By right. Covering up just enough that nobody will notice, or that hopefully nobody will notice. does. That make sense?
1: Yeah, that's right. Because in those it's ways, pride. It's pride. Yeah, and so the the students they would often say things that were on the, the negative side of neutral about themselves. And I would often ask him like, what kind of, what kind of titles and what kind of names do you have for yourself in school and in your family life and in these things? And inevitably this, it would always be listed on the negative things. And so the question that I always ask him is why is it so much easier to believe the negative things about your life than the positive things? Why is it so hard for us to feel like we are behind and that we have a God that doesn't love us unless we qualify for him? Why do we accuse ourselves that we're not strong enough, that we're too weak, that we're not good enough, that we're not pretty enough, that we don't fit a status quo? That we're... Why do we do that to ourselves? Because none of it's true. There are things that are, are objectively true. Like, for instance, if I say, as per this is what this particular weight and measurement means, my body weight right now is more than I want it to be. But there's a fact of saying that I weigh a certain much, but then there's a story as to what that means. And facts are facts, but it's the stories about ourselves that destroy us.
0: You know, I have an answer to your question. It's an answer, at least. It's a, it's a quote from Marianne Williamson that came to my mind. It's often cited as a Nelson Mandela quote because he was quoting her in his inaugural address. Do you know the quote? Tell me. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, Who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel unsure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us. It is in everyone. As we let our light shine, we consciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear our presence automatically liberates others.
1: Oh, man. I love that.
0: That's part of what I experience around my mother-in-law, you know? Yeah. It's that sense of freedom.
1: There are very few people who can be that. For, for, uh, there's, let, me, let me rephrase that. There, everyone can be that. Everyone already is that. There are very few of us that will ever truly recognize that about ourselves and who can then be that for others. And that's where I see this this real persecution comes from, is that when those people who are typically beatitude living people, those who empty and who go through this process and are willing to do the work for themselves, they become a type of person that the world can't recognize. I, they have no context to, and that's when they begin to they begin to fight against the beatitude person you know so i do a lot of i do a lot of study in um, of church history studies in church and and I study a lot about uh, the lDS church history and w- I was doing a master's thesis in mormon nationalism from eighteen thirty to nineteen hundred nineteen hundred for a uh, for a master's in history at Cal State Bakersfield, where I live. And I, and I didn't complete it. I, I, I switched to uh, I switched universities, and, and I didn't complete that. But one of the things that I learned while I was studying for it, and I was, I was doing my pr- preliminary research, was into how identity is formed. And we've talked a lot about identity, you, know, you and I, Christopher, in, in some of these previous episodes, and about how that, how that identity is formed. But one of the other things that, one of the arguments I was going to make in that paper was that the Latter Day Saints, in a type of way? And it's not—it's not to say that they were completely responsible, but that they played a, a very—they played a very large role in their own persecution. That the way they handled themselves, and the way that they projected themselves, and the way that they—they—they they, they showed up in Missouri, and the way that they handled persecution, and the way that they did. If there was more Beatitude type living among the saints of Missouri, things, it's hard to be able to say as a historian. In fact, it's impossible to say as a historian what would have been. But at least this is what if history? Yeah, what if history? But at least this is what we know that while they were Beatitude and they followed a Beatitude type living, while they turned the other cheek, while they were able to suffer the persecutions of their Missouri neighbors, and while they did that, persecutions were manageable. It wasn't until they began to fight back, and it wasn't until they began to show strength, and it wasn't until they began to really assert themselves back into trying to regain what they thought they lost, where the persecutions became very extreme. And that's that's a really important lesson to recognize in our lives. That a lot of times the persecutions in our lives, they're manageable. Other people have their traumas, and they're going to play them out as well. And so part of the meekness of the Beatitudes is to recognize that other people are living in their stories and their identities that they haven't emptied out yet. And that's why a person who has emptied out and is working on emptying out their identities is not affected by those who haven't because they recognize that the other person is still dealing with their stories.
0: And they're able to mourn with those who mourn as they either are suffering the persecution of not emptying or as they have emptied and lost that identity and they, they're mourning it now, either way.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a perfect way of saying that too, Christopher, because the second beatitude is mourning. To be meek, they've already learned what it is to mourn. So that they can, That's why the, the second beatitude is the second beatitude and third beatitude is the third beatitude, because those that are meek can turn around to mourn with those who have not emptied. And that is where we begin to see that that's where the hungering and the thirsting and the filling and the mercy, all of a sudden start, those, those beatitudes, you start moving through them really fast. And that's why I said it's so important to get the first beatitude, because once you get the emptying and kind of the mourning and, and, and the meekness, everything else happens really fast.
0: And let's not forget that this emptying applied even to Jesus himself, right? This, as it's called, kenosis, is something he had to do to be able to give up his own will and submit to the will of the Father.
1: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, before he went into the ministry, he, that, that's he's going out for forty days and forty nights into the wilderness to fast. What do we think he's doing for those forty days? He's not out there for his. He's not out there for his fun. <laughs> I mean that's like the worst fun ever. I mean, I'm like Jesus, what are you going to go do? He's like, I'm going to go fast for forty days and forty nights in this arid wasteland wilderness. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it sounds like fun. See you later, Jesus. That that's not the point of that.
0: And he has to have all the temptations.
1: The mm-hmm. temptations come come there towards the end, right? Right when he's the weakest. And the question comes up: Was Jesus really tempted? And the answer is yes. He was tempted. It wasn't that Satan came up and came out to try to tempt him. No, th- there was a moment that Jesus was tempted to do it.
0: The language is ambiguous, right, when we say he was tempted. But it's but it's clear that he felt tempted. That's right. That he felt to that he that he had to again empty himself of his own will. Completely, and submit completely to the will of the Father, and that's perfection.
1: You know, I was reading Spurgeon. And I think it was Spurgeon. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and he he was saying he was talking about blessedness about this this uh, Macarius, right? And about how this is where this blessedness is a, is a special word in this context because. It identifies that this is what God would be doing if God was here. And it really shows you the path that God walks.
0: It is what God is doing because he is here. <laughs> that's exactly
1: right. And that's the point I was bringing up. You talked about Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus is literally walking this path. Yeah. Jesus was literally doing this. This is literally what God is doing. And
0: he's telling us to follow him. Mm-hmm. This is the path. This is the core of Jesus' teaching, the, the Beatitudes, And that's why we've now with this episode we're covering the last one. They're all we've you've recorded an episode, either you have or I have with Riley on every one of these.
1: Yeah. These are these are so important and I think we could record them all over again and pull something new out. There's just there's so much here, right? Absolutely. But you know, the blessedness and the blessed of the persecuted, it continues into verse 11 where it says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know, in the Book of Mormon, it, it says something a little bit different because in, in verse 10, blessed are they which are pers- persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the Book of Mormon, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake.
0: Taking upon themselves the name of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me, back to your comment about, you know, uh, start, starting over and, you know, we could record these all over again. Well, yeah, that's, that would be in the spirit of the Beatitudes, wouldn't it? This is <laughs> right. what we said. <laughs> that's you the just whole start over at the beginning again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So in, in that way, we have Jesus who is persecuted on the cross. And what does he say to those who, perse- who are the persecuting him? His persecutors, right? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So this is this is the act of the peacemaker on the cross in the, in the very act of persecution, pleading for forgiveness, pleading pleading because the those who are persecuting, are acting out of their egos. They're acting out of their identities to the world. They don't they haven't repented, and that's why I love the definition of repentance so much in the LDS Bible Dictionary, that it's a it's taking a fresh view about God about ourself, and about the world around us because that repentance process literally is is the pouring spirit there it, it's it's the seeing god completely different and that god allows us to see him differently that, that god allows us to forget our idea of god as it were to to set our our idea of god aside and then to reveal him as he really was <laughs> so
0: you know, You know. sometimes I think we, we may misunderstand the idea of what it means to be the Prince of Peace. You know, when you, when you spoke of Jesus being the peacemaker, the peacemaker, I thought, yeah, the Prince of Peace, right? That's his act of, of asking, you know, of, of praying for his enemies, for his supposed enemies, right? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because I think we might think of the Prince of Peace as someone who who fights a battle and wins this is the roman idea of of uh, peace through victory yeah pax romana that's up. not how jesus wins yeah he he wins not by fighting but by emptying himself of his ego going through this whole process living this the teachings that that he left us and asked us to follow him in in living ourselves as and taking upon ourselves his name and he wins through love, through justice, through seeing things as they really are, in right relationship with us and with God.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a different kind of peace. You know, when Jesus says that, my peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. You know, he lives in a day where the Pax Romana, where the, the peace of Rome was established at the sword, right? Right. And yet we have this, like Pax Christi, you know, the, or this this Pax through this peace through Christ, which the Romans the Romans laughed at this idea of of the Christian God,
0: of course, because
1: to because to the Roman deity their entire construct of deity was someone that prospers you that keeps you from death that makes you wealthy, makes you successful, overcomes all of your physical enemies. And to a large extent, the Jews had adopted this. I mean, they'd already had their own version of it throughout the Old Testament, all the way, you know, even from David, right? Every, they all really wanted to restore the glory days of Israel back to what they had told stories of lore about King David and, and, and the, you know, the kingdom. But this kind of peace... They truly missed the, the Prince of Peace when he came, because he brought a peace that was not established at the end of a sword. And in fact, when the Romans say, are like, wait, you believe in a God that, me- that we killed your God? like, And not just we killed your God, but we crucified him after we stripped him naked and we, we flogged him? And then we crucified him, and that's the guy you worship that you think is going to save you? Yep. Yep.
0: <laughs> it really comes right. down
1: to that. And, and, and this is like when Revelation and, – and I love Brian Zond when he he has this, this episode about the, the book of Revelation and about how we completely misinterpret it. And not, take it with a grain of salt. Every Christian evangelical minister has said that we've misinterpreted the book of Revelation, but I happen to like Brian Zond's take on it. When he when he oh, yeah, talks when he talks about it as though it's political satire, and and so he he, he brings up this idea. He says, imagine a thousand years from now, after the United States has gone all the way of the Earth, an archaeologist are thumbing through, and, and they end up coming across an old comic strip of an eagle, a bald eagle, with a donkey in, in one hand and an elephant in the other, saying, "I'm t- sick and tired of you two guys," right? <laughs> Yeah. Any, any American right now, just with that context, they know exactly what's going on, right? You don't need any other further understanding. But yet all of the imagery in the book of Revelation is of that same type of political imagery, of representations of different things.
0: All the way down to the acrostic of, uh, of Nero, right? Of the number of the beast, 666 being yeah, 666. the acrostic of, of Nero Kaiser, you know, Nero yeah. Caesar.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. And so in this way, we, you know, he, he talks about, and the whole point of me bringing this up is, he said, you know, there's a scene in the book of Revelation where these monsters, where you have a, a lamb with its throat that's been cut, that comes and vanquishes all these monsters. And so it's, it's like you talk about all these monsters and you turn your gaze over here to the destroyer of monsters, and it's a sheep with its throat slit. And you're supposed to, and just the juxtaposition there, you're supposed to kind of laugh thinking, what? And yet that's the whole purpose of this whole thing is that the lamb is what destroys the monsters. It's what overcomes and vanquishes everything through the blood of the lamb. And so this is, this is the kind of peace that Christ brings through self-sacrifice and through peacemakers because they've emptied themselves from all the attachments of the world today. We feel the need to defend so many things in this life. But the fact is, is that reality does not need to be defended. Reality is just reality. And those that we feel we need to defend reality from or defend reality for or defend reality to, um,
0: they're all part of reality.
1: They're all a part of reality as well, <laughs> and and, and, so, and there
0: wouldn't be you without them.
1: And you and, and this is not to say, like for instance, when Galileo comes up against the Catholic Church, and you know, he's he's bringing in more a more thorough concept of reality against the Catholic Church. This is not what we're talking about. Um, th- we're talking about things that we, stories that we have about reality, not reality itself.
0: Right. Shaila, there's something else we should bring up here as we're talking about Jesus as a peacemaker and as we're talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and the example of Christ and how he brings about peace, and that is this verse that says that he comes not to bring peace but a sword. This is something that we've dealt with in other episodes but that fits in this episode to, to bring it up again and, and explain that. Something that's misunderstood, Right.
1: Yeah, why don't you start with
0: that? Well, the the idea of the sword, you know, being a part of the the image of the archetypal king as something that, and it's a two edged sword, right? That distinguishes between truth and error. So the the irony of this idea of Jesus, given the rest of his life and his example and everything that he lived, in, and of course in the context of of this, what we're calling a political parody, at least as one possible interpretation. Is that the sword is a symbol of discernment between what is right and what is wrong, between what is real and what is not, between what is Christ-like and what is not Christ-like, and does not represent a weapon in this case. Is there anything you would add to that?
1: Yeah, you know, I would take it back to the Garden myth, you know, with with cherubim, cherubim,
0: right. <laughs> cherubim,
1: yeah. Cherubim, the plural, right? You know, Being plural. The four yes. cherubim, yeah, the plural there. Um and, and they're facing you know the four cardinal directions, and cherubim has a flaming sword. Right? And the common interpretation is that God sets cherubim there to keep Adam and Eve out. But that's not the point.
0: Well, which of course can't be, right? Because we're supposed to return to the presence of God to eat from the from the fruit of the tree of life, which is the son of God,
1: right? And, and and so we have to ask ourselves that if this was, if this literal, if we're going to take this literally, which I, I don't anymore, I take it far more allegorically and, and mythically. But let's say it's literal, because I'm I'm completely okay if it's literal. I just that's not where the value that I find in it rests at all. But if that's the case, where was cherubim when Lehi walked up to it in his dream? Like, was, did Cherubim just, like, take a vacation that day? (laughs) It was, Cherubim's like, I've been here for a really long time. Let's all, let's all go take off. But when Lehi walks up to the Tree of Life, Cherubim's not around. Uh, there's a beautiful scripture in in the Book of Mormon, and I'd have to go find it. In, I didn't come prepared with it. It's in he- It's in the first few chapters of Helaman. But I remember reading it, and it married all of these uh, the, the cherubim with the rod of iron analogies. And it really shows that the rod of iron really is the symbolic cherubim. The rod of iron is that thing which brings you into the tree of life. Cherubim is there with a the flaming sword because, as we've talked about in previous episodes— it's, it's the cutting away of the ego. It's the cutting away of the false self. It's the, Adam and Eve fell and they entered the, of du, the world, the epistemic world of dualism, of, of everything by its opposites, right? And they were supposed to come out of the world of dualism from the knowledge of good and evil because the knowledge of the, just the love of God is a singularity. It's a unity. It's just one fruit. And so the sword there is cutting away the dualism. It's cutting away the way that we see the world by its opposites and just sitting with the unity and the singularity of, of God.
0: Yeah, and this is what I meant by distinguishing between what is and what isn't, because that duality is is not reality. Right. The reality is a unity. Yeah.
1: It, it, it just is what it is.
0: Not to be confused with uniformity.
1: <laughs> this is true. This is true. Had so, what I see. In. That's right. You know, it's, it's sad that we always have to throw that in whenever we talk about unity not being uniformity. But right here with verse thirty four, so when I see Jesus saying, I come not to bring peace, but a sword, it's it's the same sword that I see cherubim has. He's not coming to bring the peace that they were looking for. He's not coming here to bring this this whole false unity under false identities. He's coming here to cut away the natural man. He's coming here to cut away everything that is that will set us against our eternal natures. right? And so it's not that he's coming to—because he's the Prince of Peace. He leaves people with peace, right? My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. So Christ is even recognizing that the world has a sense of peace that it gives. The world has an, has an idea of peace that it wants to provide. And we can even say maybe this is, if we're looking at kind of a yin-yang thing here, maybe this is even Satan's counterfeit of peace that Satan wants to offer. I love Hugh Nibley's statement in uh, it's, it's his, in a, his uh, article called the, um, the Ancient Law of Liberty. I had to think about it for a second. The Ancient Law of Liberty. Um, it's on YouTube. You can Google it. But he talks about how we have to remember that Satan's original point was not viciousness, but he was trying to compel virtue by edict. That Satan was originally planning a world of where you could enforce goodness and you can enforce virtue. And that all the archetypal kings ever since then have been following Satan's plan of trying to enforce virtue by edict. And so when we look at that, we see that there is very much a worldly peace where we try to use the, the worlds and, and the, the governments of men to establish peace. But Christ comes with a peace where we have to empty from our worldly identities in establishing the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven will look nothing like it all, like the kingdoms of, that men have built to find peace whatsoever.
0: Not like Rome. Not like <laughs> the Roman Empire. Not like the American Empire. <laughs>
1: yeah definitely not like those two empires right so you know that brings us back to persecution here and and i really think that more than just the external persecution i really think there's far far more value because most of us in our i'm complete that far more value in looking at the internal persecutor within ourselves because in our lives we're not going to get persecuted like you are, if you're in North Korea and a Christian, or if you are a Uyghur living in China right now, right over in Urumqi, you're not going to get persecuted like that. You're not if you if you're a Muslim Uyghur living over in China right now, you're you're being physically persecuted. <laughs> That's just you're getting physically manhandled, and there's a there's a genocide going out against you. If you if you are a Christian in certain communities in Africa, the same thing is going on, and. And so those are the physical persecutions. There's nothing like that whatsoever going on in America.
0: Not now, uh, on the one hand, and, and yet there could be. And, and even for those who are suffering that persecution elsewhere, I think as, as difficult as it may be, right, it does actually ultimately fall into the category of what we talked about earlier when we talked about having our fingers cut off. So it, it may not be the greatest struggle that we face. I'm reminded of a quote from David O. McKay, the greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. And, yes. and that, in fact, that's parallel to a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, who when returning from battle, uh, from a battle, said to his companions, "We're recur- we're returning from the lesser jihad, and jihad means struggle. It's the same thing that that David O. McKay is saying, right? We're, we're returning from a lesser struggle to the greater struggle because if, as we go on from this battle, we go back to our daily lives where we're going to fight these these battles in, in the silent chambers of our souls. And those are... Because, right, do, do you see what I mean? Anything that's outside of us is really ultimately just a part of reality that it may be unfortunate that we're persecuted in that way, but there's really... Nothing we can do about it.
1: Yeah. I, and, that, and that was a really great way, because that's ultimately the point I was trying to make, was with all the physical persecution that really does happen, it doesn't yeah. really happen in this country. I mean, it, right? Not, not like that.
0: And And it's funny because you have people, you know, they feel like they're persecuted for righteousness sake because they're standing for whatever version of whatever they believe is the thing as you were saying earlier that we have to protect that somehow god needs us to protect xyz about christianity as though he didn't you know have his own well on the one hand as if he weren't sovereign and and on the other hand as if as the people that he made free that he gave asians who weren't sovereign themselves right and so we have people I don't know, bad mouthing us on Facebook or something. We think I have, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and, <laughs> and I'm reminded of Rob Bell, who mentions the the Dalai Lama in the case of somebody who thinks they're being persecuted on on Facebook because of their political or religious beliefs, and 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 Rob Bell says, "You you think you have haters? The Dalai Lama has haters. China, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right." You know, and one of the things I always laugh about is like the war on Christmas and the persecution of the war on Christmas. I'm like, there's never a time in any Christmas where I'm like, there's a war against Christmas as I'm getting my Christmas tree, right? As I'm coming home and I'm reading the Book of Luke to my family, I'm like, there's not. This is not a war on Christmas. And it is like do, do you really honestly believe that Jesus is like you guys need to celebrate my birthday on December 25th in this particular way and have my name plastered on everything.
0: Well, not only that, but you you know I took my wife to Syria in Jan in January of whatever year it was before Syria fell apart and descended into chaos and it was January and they're Christmas trees. You can see that this is in Syria in a Muslim-majority country. Who are we kidding? You know, there's no, there's no, there's there's not even a persecution of Christmas in Syria, yet alone in the United States.
1: Right. And I know there's a lot of people that, that they really get... And the reason why I brought Christmas up is I know there's a lot of emotion surrounding it. I know there's a lot of things that talk about it when when it comes along. But this is the very kind of thing we're talking about in emptying out so that we're not we're not taking these battles that are man-made and fighting them in the name of God for Jesus's birthday and and I, and I get there's a sense that we want to preserve holy days for on behalf of Jesus but the fact is is that those things just don't really exist um there are far more weighty matters that concern our actual internal persecutions and the beatitude path. And so, and so this is one of those things we're just taking it back to the beginning. The persecutions that we truly will experience on a day by day basis are the ones that come from our own ego. It's the things that tell us that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, that we're not doing things the right way. It's the thing that, that, that originates the fear of being deceived. I was like, man, in my, in my life, there's, there was a very subconscious fear of being deceived until I truly had experienced the love of God, even on a micro level. And in that moment... I lost that entire fear of ever being deceived, because even if I was, there was a, there was a person who I was doing business with at one time, and we, uh, it's a really long story, I'm not going to get into it, but there was a prayer that was uttered, and this this gentleman, he was a very devout Christian, he's a very good friend of mine still, and there was a business decision that needed to be made, and when he prayed, he says, Lord, if we make a mistake in what we're doing, we make it in your name." We're we're doing our best to be everything that we're supposed to be. And that prayer has stuck with me for, I don't know, 10 years, fifth, maybe even longer than that, whenever it was. But just God, if we're making a mistake, we're making it in your name because our intention is to do what's right.
0: You know, Shiloh, that reminds me of a quote that I shared with you earlier, which I don't know if you saw it. I texted it to you. It's from Thomas Merton. Uh, the the Christian contemplative often mentioned on this podcast. He says, "My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following Your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please You does in fact please You. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire." And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may not know nothing about it. Therefore, while will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never lead me to face my perils alone.
1: Yeah, I love that. It's that. It's that. Yeah, it's that. Well, I don't know if I have much more to say after that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's really where it goes. So, In my life, it, there's things I can plan for. There's things I can try to, to to get in my life in a particular order to accomplish certain things. And it really comes down to, I, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, I don't know. But what I do know is, is that every time I rely on God, And I give that I don't know to God in the moments when I want to blame myself and when I am in that moment of persecution, self-persecution. That's when I know I have to start everything over again. Mm -hmm. Is because I'm like, oh, there's something there that I didn't empty from. Yeah. There's something there that I need to go back to. But guess what? God's there too. Yeah. He's he's always there. He was there when I emptied the first time and then I come and I'm persecuting myself again. I'm like, I need to empty some more. And God's like, Yeah, I know. I'm like, you still here? And the voice comes back and it says, Yeah, always. Always. I'm like I'm like, You sure? And he's like, Yeah, I'm here.
0: Well Shiloh, thank you for coming on and recording this episode with me.
1: Yeah, thanks for
0: having me. And thank you all for listening Let us know if you have any comments And Have a great week